James, the half-brother of Jesus, wrote a letter to the early church to encourage them in the movement of Jesus. These are practical words reminding us that authentic faith is evidenced by love and good deeds, that the movement of Jesus flows through sacrificial love. When the waves of life become choppy and rough, James teaches us how to endure, how to press in, how to seek wisdom and live for what matters most. Because God is still moving through His church, the timeless words we find on these pages are God's invitation to put faith into action and see how God wants to move through you today. Cross Point, it is so good to be with you. I just want to start out by just letting you know it is such a joy to get to serve as your pastor, to get to see what God is doing in this church, to be a part of what God is doing. I just want to thank you for the way, I mean, really, and thank God for the privilege of, of getting to serve as your pastor. I love you, church. And just yesterday, we served the city. Some of you are here today, maybe because you, you were a part of the serving project. You came back to return praise and honor and glory to God, to worship God. Uh, some of you are here today because you made a vow to God yesterday during the uh, Tennessee-Florida game. And you said, God, if Tennessee wins this game, I will worship. And you're making good on your promise and your vow to God. And uh, so welcome. Whatever brings you through the doors or watching online today, we are, uh, we're glad that you're with us. Today, we're going to kick off one of my favorite series of the year, in that every year we do a series called Movement. And, and movement for us is kind of, like, you know, like a swing set where you got to go back if you want to go forward. I mean, with a swing set, you got to go back, you got to pump your legs if you want to go forward. What, what the series movement is for us is we go back as a church to some of these epistles and these letters to early churches in the scriptures, and we study a, a book in the scriptures, an epistle in the scriptures, for, we study it for, for about a month, and we go back and we say, what are the lessons or what are the things that God would teach us about the early movement, the church as it's created to be? What, what, what are some of the things that God wants to teach us so that we can move forward together? And, uh, and we've studied uh, many different epistles. We've actually we studied um, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Um, there are 21 I believe there are 21 epistles in the, in the New Testament, and actually we've, 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 got, we've got 17 um, left, which means that in, uh, in, in 2039, we're going to wrap this thing up, and, uh, and so we're just we're heading that way. And it, but, but I love that we're going we're to be able to look at the book of James um, today. We're going to open up the book of James, and, um, and we want to help you as a church. We want to help you get the most out of this, so we've got some resources that we've put together for you. In fact, if you go to crosspoint.tv slash movement, um, you'll find... Uh, the resources we have there. If you go to crosspoint.tv slash James, um, you'll see a picture of James Savage, our Dixon campus pastor. That's not, I mean, if, if you want to look at that picture, that's fine. You can go to that. But if you go to slash movement, um, you'll find the resources. We've, got a, we've actually got a reading plan to help you walk through um, over the next few weeks to walk through the book. So there's a little bit of reading every day with some devotional questions to help you process and help you, help you learn and apply it to your life. And then we've also got a podcast that we're going to be putting out with the book of James. It's going to help you answer some questions that you might have. And we'll be taking questions throughout the series and, uh, and helping you uh, with those. But we want to help you get as much as you can out of this study and take the deeper dive in the book of James. But, um, but today we're going to talk about how to move forward when we're facing trials. Like how do we move forward in faith when we're facing trials? And the reality is, this is a message for all of us because we've all either experienced trials, going through one trial now, or there's one around the corner. 
And so this is a message, message for all of us. So the question is, how do we have deeper faith? How do we grow in faith? How do we endure? How do we persevere in the midst of the trials in our lives? And if you were alive in 2020, 2020 like if you were alive in that time, like you know something of trials. There have been trials that we've experienced and we've walked through together that time, especially if you've been in leadership, if you've been leading anything, even just leading yourself. I mean, if you've been in leadership, though, there have been different... Uh, Let's just say there have been an accelerated or more, more trials that have been going on. That was why I was so grateful over the summer for our elders saying, hey, take a sabbatical. And they granted me a sabbatical a few, uh, it was actually a couple months, just to pull back and to rest and to recharge and to pray and to seek the Lord. And, and there was something that I read in that time of, of sabbatical, and it was from Parker Palmer. And he talks about the soul. He says, the soul is like a wild animal tough, resilient, resourceful, and savvy. It knows how to survive in hard places, and yet the soul, despite its toughness, is also essentially shy, just like a wild animal. It seeks safety in the dense underbrush. If you want to see a wild animal, you know the last thing you should do is go crashing through the woods yelling for it to come out. And I had a lot of kind of crashing, and you probably did too, a lot of crashing through the woods, and sometimes it just takes pulling away to have re-encounters with God, to hear from him, to recharge, to get vision for the future. And so I knew I needed kind of this calm kind of, kind of sense. And one of the first things I did on sabbatical was I booked a ticket, not to, um, not to Maui, but to Missouri. I uh, went to Kansas City. And I went to Kansas, you might think, Kansas City on a sabbatical. But I went to Kansas City, I went to meet with this man, and this is uh, Pastor Glenn Shepherd, And he is really, really tall. Um, I'm just taller than he is. We just, he's, he's six, seven. And, uh, and so um, Pastor, Pastor Glenn Shepherd is a giant in the faith. He is a giant in the faith. Pastor Glenn Shepherd is the one who, he's the pastor who led my dad to Christ uh, 44 years ago. And so I knew I wanted to spend some time. I've only been with him a couple times. I knew I wanted to get some time with him. So I flew up to Kansas City to spend the day with him. We ate Kansas City barbecue. And we talked the story. I said, tell me the story of leading my dad to Christ. And the story, as he told me, was my dad was the last person that he led to Christ at the church that he was at. And uh, before he left, onto a different assignment. And he said, the church, many people have been praying for my dad. And it was in the lobby. He said, my dad was walking out. And he said, Frankie, I know why you're here. You're here to be saved. My dad knelt and he received Christ. And that changed, it changed my dad's life. And so he's telling me this story. I'm like, tell me more. Tell me what God did. And he said that we, they just experienced a movement. God, he said it was a movement. He said there were 1,500 people that came to Christ over 18 months. In a church that sat about 400 people, 1,500 people come to Christ. He said there were just miracles that were happening. There were marriages that were restored. There were prodigals that were coming home. There were, there was just, there were prayers that had been prayed that were, that were answered. He said it was just a move of God in that town, in that city, in that church. He says, just community transformation. Lives were being changed. Families were being changed. People set free from addiction. He's telling me all this stuff. I'm like, this is incredible. I said, what was the secret? He said, prayer. He said, prayer in Jeanette Harris. I said, who's Jeanette Harris? He says, this is this, this older woman who had been praying for revival for years and years and years and years and years. Long before he, long before he said that I got there, she'd been praying. And so it was, uh, it was a little, about a week later, I was back in Atlanta over the break, and I went to that little old church. And I went to that church, and I kind of just, I just stood out there in front, and I just looked at that building, and I'm thinking, it, there are a lot of people that would drive by that church, you know, and I don't know what I expected to encounter, but as I looked, I was thinking, on the other side of those doors in the lobby, that's the headwaters of the move of God in my family. That God moved on a day there that changed our family trajectory forever for eternity. 
And so there was a move of God in our family that started there. And then I started thinking about the 1,500 people in their lives that are being changed. And it's just this picture of movement. And, and I don't know if the security cameras picked it up, but I walked around that building. I'm walking around that building, and I walked circles around that building praying, God, would you do it again? Would you do it again in our lives? Would you do it again in our church? God, we want to be a part of your movement. We want to be a part of what you're doing. God, we want to be a part of the movement in our day, in our time. And so I, I wonder, where, where do you need to walk circles? Where do you need to go back and remember? Because one of God's primary strategies that he uses to help us endure trials in our lives is to go back and remember what he did in the past. In fact, you see this in scripture. You see that after this major victory, after the Israelites, God routes the Philistines. And then what he does is he has Samuel. He tells Samuel, I want you to go and take a stone. This is actually a much larger stone. But he's like, I want you to take a stone and I want you to set it up. I want you to set up the stone. In fact, in 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12, it reads this way. It says, Then Samuel took a stone, and he set it up between Mizpah and Shen. He named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. And so he says, Samuel, I want you to go, and I want you to take that stone, and I want you to set the stone up. And when you set the stone up, that stone is going to tell a story. That stone is going to be a mile marker of your faith so that you can look back and you can point to that stone. And when your kids ask the question, why is there a big stone that's standing up? You can tell them the story about the rescuing hand of God. Samuel, I want you to set that stone up as a reminder of God's faithfulness because there's going to come a time where you need God's help in the present, and you're going to need to go back and draw faith from what God's done in the past. And you can go back and you say, let me tell you the story where I set that stone up of how, how God helped us through the trial, how he helped us through the setback, how he helped me through the loss and through the diagnosis and through the grief, through the valley of the shadow of death and through the, through the lawsuit and through the pain and through the battle, through the injury and through the injustice that I've experienced. The Lord has helped us thus far. Let me ask you a question. Where do you need to go set up a stone? Maybe you're leaving today going, my backyard is about to look like a rock garden. Because... Many of us, we have stories of God's faithfulness. We have stories of how God has been, had been faithful in the past. And one of the ways that we stir up faith in present trials is remembering God's faithfulness in the past. There's this song, this, this old song, maybe you're familiar with it. It says, come thou found. And there's a great line in it that says, here I raise my Ebenezer, here by thy great help I've come, and I hope that I got by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. Maybe you've sang that song before and you're like, I didn't know what it meant to raise an Ebenezer. Well, now you do. We raise an Ebenezer, a stone of remembrance in our hearts and our minds to point back and see God's faithfulness. And so James is writing this letter to the church to help them endure trials. Because the early church, they were going through trials. And, and what they're going through at the time when he's writing this letter is they're going through persecution. And so there's persecution that's coming, that's coming from the Romans on one side, because they still have more crosses, and from the Judaizers, from those who, who, are, who are Jewish believers who have started to follow Jesus. And so they're experiencing persecution, and there's jails, and there's ostracized, and there's economic injustice that's going on because of their faith, because they put their faith in Christ. And so there's this, in the midst of those trials between, between both sides and what they're experiencing in life, all of the trials in life, but, but martyrdom and, and mistreatment was a way of life for these early believers. And James is writing this letter to encourage them in their faith. And so if you've got a Bible, you can turn to James chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, you can take one from the person next to you. And let's go to James <laughs> chapter, chapter 1. You can pull it up on your phone. James chapter 1. You can read along on the screen. Pick up in verse 1. 
It says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's start with this. Who is James? James, if you remember from the introduction, he's the brother of Jesus, the half-brother of Jesus. Can you just imagine with me what it would be like to be Jesus' half-brother? Can you imagine, about, can you imagine being Jesus' half-brother? Can you imagine the pressure? Come home and mom says, James, why can't you be more like Jesus? <laughs> James, next time, just ask yourself the question, what would Jesus do? <laughs> I mean, this is, this, is, this is the pressure James is living. He's living in, in that kind of pressure in life. And, and maybe, maybe the expectations were too high, or maybe it was jealousy, or maybe just confusion, or maybe James just, you know how hard it would be to believe that your brother is the creator of the world? We don't know all the reasons, but we, what we do know is that James struggled to believe. James taps out, and in Jesus' ministry years, James didn't believe. He was an unbeliever. And, and so when you think about that, James, brother of Jesus, he had a front row seat for the move of God, the greatest move of God in history, but yet he, he didn't believe. And there's this moment in John chapter 19, verse 26, when Jesus is on the cross and Jesus says, Jesus, Jesus says to John and his, Mary, his mother Mary, who are right there in front of him, he says, woman, here is your son, and son, here is your mother. So Jesus entrusts his mother to John. And it's this beautiful moment, but I didn't think about it until this week, that it's a sad commentary on where James was at, because that was James' job. It would have been James' job to care for his mother. But James was, for some reason, and we don't know the whole story, but he was estranged. He was distant. And so at that moment, Jesus had to entrust Mary to John. And James is out of the picture. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul writes, he's writing to the church, and he gives us this beautiful, he gives this beautiful picture. He says that Jesus revealed himself. He demonstrated that he was alive. He came back from the dead. And over 500 eyewitnesses, they saw him. And then it says, and there's this verse in verse 7, it says, and then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. I love this. I love it so much, my voice just kind of cracked. Like there's, I, I love the fact that Jesus, that the first person Jesus goes to, when he goes, there's all the apostles over there, Jesus goes to James. What was that moment like? Shows up to James, he's like, JJ, <laughs> J-Dog. We don't know what his nickname for James was. We know they were brothers. We know they had nicknames, but we had something. But we know in that moment, something happened in James' heart, and James put his faith in Jesus. He believed. Maybe it took the resurrection for James to believe. I believe it did. And in that moment, he sees the risen Christ and he believes. And it's not just that he becomes a believer. He becomes, he becomes the leader of the movement in, in Jerusalem. Acts chapter 15 and 21 shows us that James is leading the church in Jerusalem. And so this story reminds me that there is nobody that's too far gone. The story reminds me that we have a God who pursues skeptics. That we have a God who meets us in our doubt. That we have a God who, who pursues us. It's the beauty of this story is that there's nobody that's too far gone. And that Jesus is the one. He leaves the 99 and he goes after the one. That he looks for James before he goes to the apostles. He looks for his brother James and says, hey, you might have missed the crucifixion, but you're not missing the resurrection. And James' life has changed. There's a line in that song, Come Thou Found. It says, Jesus sought me when a stranger wandering from the fold of God. He to rescue me from danger interposed his precious blood. 
We have a God who seeks the skeptic, who seeks the stranger, who pursues the doubter. And you need to know everyone's welcome. And Jesus welcomes you to himself. You can't outrun the love of God. You can't outsend the grace of God. You can't go past the mercy of God. He welcomes you to himself, and he pursues you. And God, even though maybe you've turned your back on God, he's never turned his back on you. And he welcomes He's drawing you. He's pursuing you. Maybe even now, that's why you're here, is because he's calling you to himself. Jesus is working in your life. And he wants you to experience that transformation. And, and, and James probably had his reasons for doubting. I know he did. My dad had his reasons too. Just like my dad experienced life change, just like James experienced life change, the same life change is available to you. That's the good news. That's the gospel of what happens when we put our faith and our trust in Jesus. And James is a different man. Look at how he introduces himself. I love this. He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I love his humility. You know what I love about this is that he doesn't, na- he doesn't name drop. He's not like, James, brother of Jesus. I mean, I would have. Like in that moment, I would. But he doesn't. He doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't name drop. He's just James, a servant of God. You know, um, it's, a, it's a fresh wind, like when somebody just, just doesn't name drop. I was with uh, Keith Urban the other day, and he was like, I hate it when name drop, people name drop. I just, and, um, I'm just kidding. I don't know Keith Urban, but um, some of you will get that a little later on. You will. You'll, you'll figure. But, but there, we, we live in a world where so many people name drop, and James doesn't. He's like, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ, and Christ is not Jesus' last name. It wasn't Jesus Christ and James Christ. Christ means Messiah. Christ means the anointed one. He's the king. And so James is saying, I'm not, he's not just my brother. He's my savior. He's not, he's not just my brother. He is my Lord. And he says, I am his servant. And there's something about reminding ourselves that we are servants of Jesus. When we're in trials in life, we're saying, I wouldn't pick this. I wouldn't choose this. I wouldn't want to go through this. But Jesus, I'm here to serve you. In the midst of what I'm going through, I am your servant. That God does not exist to serve us, but that we exist to serve him. And James knew something about trials. And he knew the power of the posturing of saying, I'm, just, I'm a servant. I'm a servant of Jesus. And who's James writing to? He's writing to the 12 tribes that are scattered among the nations. Why are they scattered? Because of persecution. Because of persecution, the church has, has scattered. And, and when, we, when we face persecution or we face opposition or we face trials in life, that's when we're tempted to scatter. That's when we're tempted to run. That's when we're tempted to pull back. That's when we're tempted to go into safe mode, into self-preservation. And James writes this letter to say, no, 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 no. When we experience trials, that's when we lean in. That's when we press in. That's when we seek God even more because it's in the trials of our life that becomes a platform for God getting glory. It's in the trials of our life that it's a megaphone for hope. It's in the trials in our life that builds faith in us. So when, we're, when we experience trials in life, let's keep moving because movements move. By definition, movements move. There's a lot of people and a lot of things calling things movements that aren't moving. It's not a movement if we're not moving. And so what James writes this book and what you'll see as you're studying, he says, he says faith without works is dead. In other words, if we're not moving, if we're not moving after God and after the mission that he's called us to, we'll, we'll miss out. Because this generation of believers is responsible for this generation of souls. And so don't let the trials that we experience in life hold us back 
from pressing forward. And that's what he's going to write about, pressing forward into the heart of God. And see, he, he speaks to it in verse 2. He says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And let your perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault. And it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt because the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. And James is saying, we're gonna face trials. We're going to face all kinds of trials. We're going to face small trials and big trials, major trials and minor trials. We're going to face trials that leave a, that leave a, leave a scar, and trials that leave a scratch. We're going to face trials that, that, that interrupt our day, and then we'll face trials that interrupt our lives. He's saying we're, we're going to face trials because we live in a broken world filled with broken people. And what I've noticed over the years is that when we face trials in life, they can serve like a wedge. And they can either drive us closer to God or they can drive us further away. And really in those moments, I mean, I've just seen people, think about you, Tom, and the faith that, that you demonstrate and the way that you press into the heart of God. I think about so many of your, of your stories of like where you have pressed into God, even in the midst of your trial. They're, they're just those trials are, are wedges that we go, okay, am I going to press closer to God or am I going to shrink back in faith? And so they, they, through those trials that really we, we move, we move toward God. And when we move toward God, he builds, he builds faith and it becomes a testimony for others. And we can go back in life and we can see, we can see those, those times where we say, the Lord helped me in that. The Lord carried me in that. The Lord gave me victory in that. And maybe today you're struggling to find faith. We're the body of Christ. There are people who will let you borrow theirs. Sometimes we have faith and sometimes we have to borrow faith. And that's why God gives us one, one another. This is not a solo race. And it's in those moments that we move toward him and it's seeking him and an awareness of his presence and of his love. And James says these trials test our faith. How many of you, when you, when you were in school, you liked tests? Those of you, you're, you're afraid to raise your hand if you did because you're looking around the room and going, I'm outnumbered. <laughs> you are. We don't, we, don't like, we don't like tests. But can I tell you from experience in high school, like I've failed some tests. And so my failure was not final. I did make it through, but in those tests, you know what I love was an open book test. I loved an open book test. We have open book tests. When we go through trials in life, God's saying, I'm giving you my word. And it's more than he's given us his word. He's given us his spirit. He's given us his presence. He said, when you go through the test, you're not alone. You got the teacher. Jesus said, I will put my spirit inside of you to comfort you. Like, you're not going to walk through those trials alone. And so we go through tests in life, and Jesus promised us that we would face them. In John 16, he says, I've told you these things so that in me you would have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. In that verse, right before Jesus goes to the cross, he gives us some promises. He says, I'm promising you my peace. 
I'm promising you that you'll face troubles, and I'm promising you that I overcome. So how do we endure? How do we overcome in this life? How do we have faith in the midst of trials? Let me give you, let me give you three things for you to consider and just encouragement for you if you're in a trial today. The first one is keep going. Just keep going. Keep pressing on. Keep moving forward. James calls this perseverance. He says the testing of faith produces perseverance. I've got a perseverance hero. Um, his name is Cliff Young. I've read his story recently, and back in 1983, he ran a marathon, an ultra marathon, one of the first ultra marathons in um, Sydney, Australia. I actually, went from Sydney to Melbourne. It was a 543 mile race. And what's interesting about Cliff Young is he showed up that day in overalls and galoshes. He was a 61 year old sheep farmer, potato farmer. He had 2,000 sheep on 2,000 acres. And he showed up that day to run the race, and they looked at him. He's in galoshes, and they're like, what are you, why are you wearing those? And he's like, I thought it might rain. And then the race starts, and he starts running. 61 years old, and just starts running, and he's shuffling. He had false teeth, but he didn't run with his false teeth because he said they rattled when he ran. <laughs> and he just starts, he starts running. And they called it the Cliff, the Cliff Young Shuffle. I mean, there's video of it. He's just doing this thing. And what was wild, they're like, why, why are, you, are you sure you can do this? He said, yes, I can. Because in all those years of herding sheep in his galoshes, he'd run. And he knew that he could do it. And he was out there running. And what was wild is because, because he, didn't, he didn't, you know, we had the community of all the people who had already figured out how to run. And they figured out that you run and then you sleep and then you run and then you sleep. He didn't know those rules. And so while they were all sleeping, they were all resting, he kept going. And after two days of going, he's in the lead. Cliff Young, was, he was in the lead. And they kept running and sleeping, and he kept running. And he kept running all the way. He kept going all the way. And after five days, 15 hours, and four minutes, he won the race. The cash prize for winning the race was $10,000. He didn't even know there was a prize. <laughs> he took the $10,000 and he gave it to the other five, the next five people chopped it up and gave them $2,000 a piece and he walked away with no cash. And they asked him, they asked him, question. they said, how'd you do it? He said, I just never stopped. I kept going. I thought, Phew. and let that be encouragement for you today. Don't stop. Keep going. Keep going in your marriage. Keep going in your conviction. Keep going in your calling. Keep going in your ministry. Don't stop. Keep going. Listen, don't listen to the voices that say, things would be better off if you weren't here. You keep going. God has a calling and he has a purpose on your life. You keep running. You keep, you keep shuffling. You keep moving forward. Left foot, right foot, breathe. You keep moving forward. When James wrote this letter and he said, brothers and sisters, he's writing to the church. They didn't have a personal copy on their phone. They didn't have a personal copy. Of the letter. They read it in community with one another. And so when they received it, they received it with the one another. So listen, perseverance is a team sport. We're not running all by ourselves. Cliff Young had a group of people that went with him. You need a group of people around you. That's why we exist as the body of Christ, that we would be in this race together. Keep going. One more day. One more day. Keep going, because all of life's best stories involve perseverance. I mean, think about it. Rocky, 
Braveheart, Mighty Ducks. I mean, they're all, they're all stories. The greatest marriages, the greatest businesses, the greatest churches, greatest ministries, all perseverance. We go through great tests, but the greater the test, the greater the testimony. The greater the stone of remembrance. God, help me through that. So if you want to endure in trials, go back and remember how God has helped you in the past, but then keep going in the presence with the strength that he gives. There's this great verse that says, let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Don't give up, keep going. Second, keep growing. James says, let perseverance finish its work so that you can be mature and complete. It's the trials in life that mature us. It's the trials in life that, that mature us. And the, the, the goal is not perfection, it's completion. And First Peter, Peter tells us how this happens in, in chapter one, verse seven. It says, these trials will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold. The, through your life, though your life is, is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. The image here, the image is of the, of the goldsmith. This working with the, with, the, with, the, with the ore, and so the, the goldsmith has it that's yet to be refined. And so what he does is through the fire, through the refining fire, that the impurities in that gold rise to the surface. And the, the, the goldsmith will take the impurities, will take the dross, will take these impurities that rise to the surface that have been intermingled with and remove them away until he can see his reflection in the gold. And that through the trials in life, these impurities come to the surface so that God can remove them, so that his reflection can be seen, so the reflection of Christ can be seen to the world. That God will not waste a trial, but he will use it to refine our faith and to form Christ's character in us. That's the goal. That's the goal of the church. Paul says the goal of the church is that we would be presented mature and complete in Christ, that the process of maturity is through these trials in life, that we would become more like Christ. God will use them to make us more like his son. And I imagine there was a day when James could not, he could not stand when people said, why can't you be more like Jesus? But once he met him as his savior and his Lord, there couldn't be a greater compliment in life. And James, you remind me of your brother. James, you look like Jesus. God's goal for you, God's goal for us is that we would have Christ's character through our personalities. Not that we would be clones of one another, but that we would have the character of Christ. He uses trials to grow Christ, form Christ in us. And last, keep going, keep growing, and keep knowing. You know it had to rhyme. <laughs> keep knowing. Keep seeking Christ. James talks about keep seeking wisdom. What is wisdom? It's the thoughts of God. It's the mind of God. It's the perspective of God. He's like, keep, keep asking, keep seeking. Seek his presence. Psalm 46.10 says, be still and know that I am God. We need that stillness. We don't have to take a sabbatical. We can take a Sabbath. We can take a day, a day like this where we're just still before God, still enough for the soul to kind of look out Say, can I come out? Still enough where we can hear from God. We can experience his presence and his goodness, where we can seek wisdom together and we can find joy. 
You know, neuroscience has revealed through research that joy is a relational word. I find this fascinating. Through brain scans, what they've discovered is that joy is what we experience when we're with somebody else, when it's a mother holding her baby. It's a family member coming back after they've been gone a while. It's friends getting together for a dinner and laughing. It's a family around a campfire. It's a stadium full of people. It's that joy that we have in the presence of others. You know the beautiful thing about that truth that neuroscience is just catching up with is when Jesus says, I give my joy to you, that we can experience joy all the time because it's relational. Because when we look to the face of God, we see he is with us and Christ lives in us so we can have joy in the midst. That's why James can say, consider it joy when you face trials because you're not facing them alone and because those trials will move us, will move us closer to him that we would depend on him and be in need of him and find him in that place. Uh, this past week, I felt joy when I got together with an old friend, Pastor uh, Dr. Jacques Boyd. He's a pastor of Mount Bethel Missionary Baptist Church. And you might remember, they were the church that was hit by the tornado, the same, same tornado that hit our building, hit their building. And, uh, and I said, well, let's meet up. And we met up at the church. I was like, I want to show them kind of with the construction and some of the constructions taking place. And, and so we met up at the church and we walked around, we looked at the facility. And I said, man, how's construction going for you guys? He's like, Man, it hadn't, hadn't started. And in that moment, I felt like the biggest idiot. I was like, man. But then I was thinking, he is so happy for us. Like, he has had so much joy. And so I wanted to talk about the problems. And he didn't want to talk about the problems. He just wanted to talk about Jesus. And so the whole time as we're walking together, he rejoiced in what was going on at Crosspoint. And at the same time, he just kept talking about Jesus. I said, how do you do this? How do you have so much joy in the midst of problems? He said, Kevin, he said, I'm a wounded worshiper. And I was like, a wounded worshiper. He said, man, I've experienced wounds in life, but I'm worshiping. I'm going to continue to worship. And I could not get that out of my head. As we were finishing up, finishing our walk, I said, uh, yeah, I asked him a question. I said, what is Jacques? What's that the, what's that the French, Jacques? Is that French name for what? And he said, James. I said, figures. James would say, I'm a wounded worshiper. I've experienced trials in life, but I count it joy because Jesus is with me. You know, wounded worshipers, that's all there are on this side of eternity. That we limp into the presence of God and we worship him in the midst of our trials. That we keep, that we keep looking to him. That we keep going in our trials. That we keep growing in our faith. And we keep knowing that he is with us. And that's why we can count as joy. Robert Robertson was a wounded worshiper. His dad died when he was eight years old. He and his mom were disinherited by, their, by his maternal grandfather, which left Robert Robertson out on the streets. And after a hard life at 20 years old, he showed up to hear a man named George Whitfield preach. And in 1755, that message he gave his life to Jesus at age 20 years old. And at 22, he penned these words. Come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing. Call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet sung by flaming tongues above. Praise the mount I'm fixed upon it. Mount of thy redeeming love. 
that even in the trials, there is a fountain of blessing. His name is Jesus. And even in the suffering, that there is a Savior. Where there are streams of mercy that are there for me. And even in the hardship and the heartache, that he is with me. So what I'd like for us to do is for us to go back, for us to swing back so that we can move forward. And go back to the song that was penned many years ago, but that for centuries has carried our brothers and sisters, our mothers and fathers in the faith. And we go forward together in this movement of Jesus. So I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes before Dwan leads us in this song at all of our campuses. And those with us online. That when we say trial, there is something probably right now that comes to mind. Say, God, I give this to you. And I look to you. I thank you that you are with me. And I thank you that you are faithful. And I thank you for how you've helped me in the past. God, I need your help right now. You need wisdom. You need to know what to do. Just ask him. Because he gives generously. Any faith to grow today, ask him for that. You need peace? Jesus promised he'd give it. You need endurance and perseverance to keep going? It's here for you today. It's in his presence. You need to just sit in the fountain of God's blessing and of his love you sit. But if you need to make this moment, this song, an Ebenezer stone, say, Lord, you have helped me. If you need to declare it and sing it as a wounded worshiper, that would be your invitation to. So let's respond as he leads.
Jesus sought me when a stranger wandering from the fold of God He to rescue me from danger interposed His precious blood Oh to grace how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee prone to wander lord i feel it prone to leave the god i love here's my heart here's my heart Here's my heart. 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 Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Seal it for thy courts of